Okay, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Welcome to an amazing day three of Surah Al-Baqarah. Um, I know it was very painful to not have um, the continuation of Surah Al-Baqarah over the course of the week, but it was one of these really difficult weeks where we just had so much going on. Sheikh um, was just overloaded, and it, you know, of course, your health just, I mean, a normal person can't do a lot of things that he, that Sheikh is taking on, so when, um, when you have an overload of work and you're already struggling with some health issues, unfortunately, um, we were not able to join you um, for another halakha on Wednesday. But um, alhamdulillah, so we're all here and looking forward to another session. I just, as usual, I want to call attention to the incredible um, khutbah yesterday. Um, and I, I'm always just excited, so excited when I hear what Sheikh is talking about because Again, this was a, a um, he spoke yesterday about climate change. He spoke about Facebook's secret um, list of dangerous organizations and individuals. Um, he talked about something going on in India, which is this new campaign called the Love Jihad. Um, it's fascinating, and some other really important stories along the way. And these are things that um, you just don't hear in any other Muslim space. And the thing that is very difficult also to hear is just with the weight of an impact of each of these things, you recognize in our world how much is really stacked up against Muslims. And in one way, it makes you feel um, a bit despondent because it's like the entire world um, and in every little thing from artificial intelligence, which we talked about two weeks ago, to climate change, to even Facebook. Um, these things are clear, but um, when, when you know, we're able to bring these things together in a khutbah, talk about them um, in a really, I think, honest, powerful way, this is transformative. Um, and it's so important for Muslims to hear, um, not to just be you know, despondent about how things are stacked up, but I think to just start recognizing the, um, the real moral accountability that we have and the ability that we have, the hope that we could have if we step up and do, do things. So hopefully, while these khutbahs are really difficult to hear, I hope they will also serve as inspiration for um, the fact that you know, at least one Muslim space is talking about it and emphasizing the importance of it and um, you know, identifying things that we should really be caring about and stepping forward to, to address. Um, and you know, we here try really hard. I know that it's, it's difficult. Um, people are busy to you know, sit down and watch an hour-long khutbah or listen to you know, a four, five, six-hour halakha. So we really try to make it easier um, for people to even get a little bit of that information. So if you haven't already, definitely subscribe to our weekly email because we always provide a summary description um, of the khutbah so at least you can read through it. Um, and if you even just pick up a few things, I think that's extremely valuable and we spend a lot of time doing that intentionally because we know people don't have the time and sometimes people prefer to read. Also, in that weekly um, email, we provide summaries or reflections on the, the sewers that we're covering here. Um, and you know, recently we've had um, Joe, um, in, you know, our, who's in charge of, of editing the, the Tefsir project, share some of his reflections. It's really difficult to summarize like an entire halakha over a short period of time. So it's, it's really interesting also just to hear how these halakhas have affected you personally, 
Um, and so, you know, if nothing else, it's a, it's a really interesting and engaging read to see how some of the people here have engaged with the halakas. Um, so again, I encourage you to, to read those. Um, and then we also have the links to all the things that we were doing in case you do have time. So we try to make the weekly email, you know, interesting, valuable, not just another, you know, piece of marketing that a lot of people send out. But um, I know people have told me before that they, they keep these because they, they like to go back and refer to them. So that, that is a really positive indication. And um, it's really easy to just subscribe. And then we can also let you know if there are changes and things happening here behind the scenes. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, um, all of this is just really, really important information for Muslims to, to have access to. Um, and I just wanted to share, um, you know, we, we keep track of certainly comments that people are sending through, and I love sending, uh, sharing some of these comments that are, are cute um, or interesting. And this is something from one of the YouTube videos that, um, that someone shared uh, when we missed the halakha. Um, also, if you subscribe on our YouTube channel, you will get announcements. Um, so, for example, if we need to um, delay or postpone or something like that, you can always go to the YouTube channel and see if they, we have any announcements there. But so this is something that someone posted um, on the day that, um, that she missed the halakha. So, missed Sheikh's halakha today. I always look forward to Sheikh's halakha. I'm still trying to catch up on previous ones, though. Um, I discovered Sheikh's YouTube channel a few months ago. Funny story, I, I wanted a pet dog this summer and was told that I can't have dogs indoor because they're nudges. This didn't sit well with me, so I started Googling, as always. Canada winter gets very cold, so dogs have to stay indoors. That's how I discovered Sheikh and the Asuli Institute YouTube channel. I watched Sheikh's episode on dogs, very informative and unique, and then I wanted to know more about the Sheikh and the Suli Institute, so I clicked on the YouTube playlist and found a gold mine of beneficial knowledge. Alhamdulillah, in a nutshell, a dog led me to the Suli Institute and the Sheikh. So <laughs> I thought, you know, since we are trying to uplift the status of dogs um, in, as part of, you know, our mission, I wanted to share that. Um, and then just a comment on the um, artificial uh, intelligence, um, you know, the garbage in, garbage out. We're drowning in information on the internet and craving the correct knowledge. Sheikh, you give us knowledge that we need so badly. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala grant you complete shifa and quick recovery. So um, thank you so much for your comments. Um, so I, um, and I guess just a last little funny uh, anecdote for the power of these halakas. Um, we've been like, um, we like watching horror movies. So um, last night we watched The Exorcist. And what was really striking to me, this is sort of random, but I watched, Sheikh made me watch Exorcist like 20 years ago plus when we first got married. And I used to hate horror movies. I used to get terrified. I like couldn't even watch the screen. So the idea of watching The Exorcist was just horrifying. And I think I spent most of the movie buried in his shoulder. So um, we watched Exorcist again now, 20 years later. And it was fascinating to me because with everything that I've learned in the halakas and everything that I've learned about, you know, how um, scary things really, I mean, things don't happen without God's permission and just, you know, a lot of the um, induction into ideas of the unseen and paranormal. It was very striking to me. When I watched Exorcist last night, I had a completely different perspective. I was not at all scared, but completely fascinated and was like, oh wow, this, okay, it was like relating things to things that I had learned in the Halakha. So if you are scared of horror movies um, and you want to measure your um, advancement over time, uh, maybe this is one way to do it. Watch Exorcist, see how you do, and then watch the Halakhas and see if that helps your horror movie consumption. So. <laughs>
<laughs> Random story. Anyway, um, I hope that we are all so excited um, for day three of Surah Baqarah and um, alhamdulillah, I'm looking forward to an amazing session. We are still in the process of situating Surah Al-Baqarah, uh, the most significant revelation after the Hijrah in Medina, and it is fair to say that Surah Al-Baqarah being revealed as it is after the Hijrah in Medina, considering the themes and the treatment of Surah Al-Baqarah, the subject that Surah Al-Baqarah dealt with, um, is provides the backbone for um, that central historical reality of earlier revelations that are now superseded by the Islamic revelation. Put differently, Surah Al-Baqarah in, in, in so many ways anchors the idea of why the why the Islamic revelation and what the Islam, how the Islamic revelation relates to earlier revelations whether the pre-Jewish revelation of uh, the Prophet Ibrahim والسلام, or the Jewish revelation in the form of the Mosaic Clause and the uh, message of the Prophet Musa والسلام, and then the message of the Prophet Isa and as we said the Quran takes this whole issue head on and especially it's in Surah Al-Baqarah as we've talked about so far it deals with the legacy of the Israelites and all the ways it, it reads like an accounting of the ways that the, the, the mistakes and errors that the Israelites fell into that Muslims absolutely must not fall into. And as we said, because we, we, we Surah Al-Baqarah has um, addresses so many topics and so many subjects. But it is clear from, and we see this in, in earlier revelations, but it is also clear again in Surah Al-Baqarah that the author of the Quran is 
very much aware of what the Bible, the Torah, and the Injil have said. There is no question that the author of the Quran is very much aware of the earlier revelations. But there is also no question that the Quran, what the Quran says about many of the same narratives comes as a corrective. And we will see another example of this, inshallah, tonight. That the, it, it, it comes in and as if cleanses the biblical narrative of various mythological elements that had become attached to the biblical narrative. And as we talked about last Hanukkah, that we reached this point where Allah addresses a, a, a critical issue and that people who after revelation, after uh, liberation and after deliverance um, had become adapted to and accustomed to um, a, a comfortable living. And the choice becomes between servitude with the fulfillment of material needs or liberation, the enjoyment of freedom and liberty, but with the loss of material goods. And as we talked about in the last halakha, that the Quran talks about a group of Israelites who, after having been delivered in Sina and after the parting of the Red Sea and after the, the, the explosion of the 12 springs of Moses, and a after all of that, uh, start despairing and say, we miss our old lives. We miss, although we were slaves, we had a better quality of life in, in Egypt and as the Quran puts it, "Durbat alayhim al-zillatu wal-maskana," wal-maskana. And as I said, you couldn't find better expression of the state, or a better description of the state of people who accept servitude, and who compromise their moral conscientiousness and their moral state for material gain. And as I said last Hanukkah, that this, of course, was not, a, 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 this was something that the, the early Muslims, having gone through a similar dynamic where they sacrificed numerous material comforts for the principle, for the freedom of not being oppressed in Mecca, 
um, the message was clear that if you repeat the patterns that the Israelites of the Israelites, if you prefer, and again, not all the Israelites, but the group of Israelites that in fact went back to Egypt and left Musa and went back to Egypt and settled in Egypt for a long time, that they earned God's wrath. And the message, of course, was clear that for Muslims, the struggle in Medina was going to be a struggle which entails numerous sacrifices of material well-being. But you live for a principle. You live for a moral. You live for an ethic. Rather than live living for the sake of living. And then we talked about a, a, a another moral challenge, and that is the moral challenge of law itself. That the Israelites and those are now the Israelites who stayed with Musa والسلام, confronting a legal issue the danger of becoming consumed with legal minutia with what often um, sucks out the life, what sucks the life out of morality, what sucks the life out of ethics is law without moral insight. Law is a mechanism, is a process, but it is very easy for law to become a process for its own sake. And human beings, the psychology of human beings, could escape moral responsibility either by clinging on to material things or clinging on to petty things, including their own pride, or clinging on to the technicalities of law. All of that evades moral responsibility. And as we saw in the example of the heifer, that the moral issue was the value of human life. And a process by which a collectivity will take responsibility for making space safe. The, the procedure that we talked about last Hanukkah is intended, in, in a nutshell, to say that if you live in an area, you have a responsibility to make that area safe for human life. Otherwise, you incur a form of liability in this case, financial liability. 
but the way that the that the Israelites that the Quran talks about dealt with the issue of the heifer was to become engulfed in the pedantic and technical aspects of the law and as we will see this will come full circle again in Surah Al-Baqarah when we deal with what the Quran was underscoring is the purpose of the new message or the 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 uh, uh, reincarnated message of Islam which ultimately is returning the course back to the Prophet Ibrahim okay And that, generally speaking, takes us to around verse 73. And as the Quran, and this is uh, uh, important to, to, to remember this, from the past two halqas that as the Quran talks about various groups of Israelites, the groups that succumbed to worshipping the golden calf, um, the, the group that told Musa um, as you saw God, we must see God, we won't believe you that these laws, the Mosaic laws, the Ten Commandments um, were sent by God unless we saw we see God directly as well and so God punishes this group and the group that returns to Egypt and the group that hesitates or that argues about the, the technicalities of um, uh, sacrificing the heifer we are talking about various errors committed by various groups of Israelites, all within the legacy of the prophetic message of the Prophet Musa The Quran is careful to provide a warning about sweeping generalizations as, and we talked about verse 63, which comes in and it says that, it's as if telling you, be careful not to fall into the error of assuming that all the Israelites are lost, all the Israelites are condemned, and in verse 63, specifically, the Quran comes in and says that those who are Jews or Masara Christians, and Sabi'in, the Sabians, in this case, the Sabians meant the, the group that still followed the religion of Ibrahim, um, 
monotheists, but who were neither Jews nor Christians. They remained monotheists, but they refused to follow uh, because they believed that the teachings of Judaism and Christianity were corrupted. In other words, corruptions of the original message of the Prophet Ibrahim And so the, the Quran warns you that for those Jews, Christians, and Sabians that are on the right path, they have nothing to worry about, and so on. Okay. So now we come to a very important note in Surah Al-Baqarah. When Allah then speaking to the Israelites directly, as the Quran often did, and the fact that it speaks to the Israelites directly, and sometimes the Quran speaks to Christians directly, sometimes it speaks to human broadly, sometimes it speaks to Muslims specifically, sometimes it speaks to the Prophet Muhammad specifically. In doing so, when you address a group of people specifically, you are recognizing value in the audience that you address. Because if you wanted to marginalize an audience and dismiss them as irrelevant, you speak about them, but you don't speak to them. And it is important to note that among the things that the Quran does in Medina is that it speaks to various audiences. And as we will see, it was an often nuanced and settled and, and nuanced uh, and layered message. So then, so now, ثُمَّ قَصَتْ قُلُوبُكُمْ مِنْ بَعْدِ ذَلِكَ فَهِيَا كَالْحِجَارَةِ أَوْ أَشَدُّ قَصْوَةِ وَإِنَّ مِنَ الْحَجَارَةِ لَمَّا يَتَفَجَّرُ مِنْهُ الْأَنْهَارِ وَإِنْ مِنْهَا لَمَّا يَشَّقَّقُ فَيَخْرُجُ مِنْهُ الْمَاءِ وَإِنْ مِنْهَا لَمَّا يَهْبُطُ مِنْ خَشْيَةِ اللَّهِ so this is now 74. And yet after all of this, your hearts hardened and became like rocks, or even harder. For behold, there are rocks from which streams gush forth. And behold, there are, there are some from which, when they are cleft, water issues. And behold, there are some that fall down for awe of God. And God is not unmindful of what you do. In traditional tafsir, and this metaphor, something that gave a lot of Quranic commentators pause, 
But in traditional tafsir, you often find that the way that this ayah is understood is that it speaks to the Israelites and says, with the passage of time, you've lost, or you've missed the point, you've lost your way, and your heart's hardened. And the way that a lot, a lot of traditional tafsir understand the reference to there are rocks uh, from which rivers flow, um, rocks that in fact crack and waters flow through them, and rocks that in fact, uh, as, how would they put it, that fall down in awe of God. They say, well, what it's saying is that the water is the Islamic message that comes and replaces the hearts that had become hardened like rocks. As many traditional Mufassirun point out, this tafsir seems um, forced because again look at the at the area specifically so your hearts hardened became like rocks or even harder okay but then the Quran says however there are rocks from which streams gush forth and there are rocks from which they crack and water issues through them. And then there are rocks that fall in awe of God. If Islam is the water, why would it talk about different dynamics? Rocks where water gushes forth from, water that are, as Muhammad Asad puts it, cleft or cracked, and water issues through them, or what, or rocks that fall from of God. Then what is the significance of nuancing the type of water that deals with hardened rocks? And Allah Alam, Allah knows best. But in my opinion, the best way to understand the ayah is the most direct way. The reference to rocks is a reference to hearts. As the Quran says, that your hearts became hardened. The temptation is for everyone to say, well, if their, if their hearts have become hard as rock, or harder. That's a sweeping condemnation of all Israelites at all times. But then, what the Quran comes and says, such a sweeping generalization would be erroneous. Because keep in mind, 
that even hardened hearts still goodness can find a way through them. Although, in general, and remember that the issue that the Quran has is with the continued belief of the Israelites that they are God's chosen people and that they are chosen above all and that because they're chosen people that prophecy can only be in the Israelites. And although the Bible says, as we've talked about, that the next prophet is going to be a brother not from, but the way that the Israelites dealt with this biblical, I mean, of course the Quran uh, accuses the Israelites um, of having altered the text of the Torah in many areas, but still there are parts of the Torah which were not altered and that still recognize or you still have that message of a coming prophet who is not a descendant of the Israelites. And so, when you say your hearts have hardened, it's you've gone astray in, in forgetting that this was not a message for the Israelites, but a universal message of monotheism that the Prophet Musa brought, not just to the Israelites which he led out of Egypt, but also to the Egyptians that converted and that followed the Prophet Musa So the hardening of the hearts is the corruption of the message itself, because even the most moral Israelites still accepted the idea that they are God's chosen people. But then the Quran comes and says, but keep in mind that even if their hearts were as hard as rock or harder, that doesn't mean that they're all bad or that they're all evil. Because water, which is always a symbol of goodness, in fact, has a complicated dynamic with these hardened rocks or these hardened hearts. It, water has the power to crack the hardest of rock and to split it and gush through it. Or water have the heart to penetrate it and seep through it. Or water have the heart, the, the power to topple it altogether. And the, the expression topples in awe of God. And this sort of nuancing makes perfect sense when you look at the context of what Surah Al-Baqarah is talking about right after. 
وإذا لقوا الذين آمنوا قالوا آمنا وإذا خلا بعضهم إلى بعض قالوا أتحدثونهم بما فتح الله عليكم ليحاجوكم به عند ربكم أفلا تعقلون أولا يعلمون أن الله يعلم ما يسرون وما يعلنون ومنهم أميون لا يعلمون الكتاب إلا أماني وإن هم إلا يظنون فويل للذين يكتبون الكتاب بأيديهم ثم يقولون هذا من عند الله ليشتروا به ثمنا قليلا فويل لهم مما كتبت أيديهم وويل لهم مما يكسبون So this is, takes us to, to 79 So The problem that Muslims are confronting with what I, as I said before, what they hoped were going to be their natural allies, the Jewish tribes, is that some of them had pretend to in fact be friends of Muslims and or pretend to convert to Islam and they speak to Muslims one way, but as we talked about before, that once they deal with either the hypocrites of Medina or those who didn't convert in Medina, their attitude is very different. And they, in fact, come back and underscore for the Arabs in Medina that Muhammad could not be a legitimate prophet because he is not of an Israelite, although they pretend they had pretended to convert. But even among those, the Quran draws your attention to a Again, an introspective and a careful approach because there are some of them who actually are devious because they have studied the Torah and know that they are lying. But others of them are actually completely ignorant of the Torah. They're as if illiterate. And what لا يعلمون الكتاب إلا أماني Meaning that all they know is what they've picked up or heard from others. So again, the Quran constantly alerts you to they're not the same. You, you need a, a, a sophisticated outlook to be able to differentiate between those who are true converts, those who pretend to convert, those who don't convert but are decent and moral people nonetheless and could be your friends, those who pretend to be your friends but in fact are your enemies, those who are know their, their lies are purposeful and intentional but those who, in fact, what they say, they say out of ignorance because they heard their rabbis 
assure them that the coming prophet cannot be but an Israelite, but they themselves are illiterate. They don't actually know what the book says. And subhanAllah, uh, that remains, by the way, the, the case in our, even to our very day. Um, many of the people that um, don't understand your religion or misunderstand your religion um, in fact are illiterate about the Bible and if they have if they got an education because they don't get an education a biblical education in their church in the church all you're exposed to is what the church chooses to expose you to in the Bible most Christians don't undertake a scholar study a scholarly study of the Bible and the what the and there are some I mean this has been there are a lot of publications about this is that what they know of the Bible are selections um, even the group that um, that guy that wrote the book the family about um, what was its name? There's a book called The, the Family um, about this DC high elite, extremely influential group that still exists, that is committed to spreading the word of Jesus around the world and making sure that Jesus controls the world. Um, but if you read that book, you're immediately struck by the fact that the people who joined the family, joined the path of Jesus, and these are people like, you know, Bush the father, uh, Bush the, um, the, the son, uh, Dick Cheney, Rumsfeld, um, a lot of the people that served in the Trump administration. The minute they join the family, they are given a little booklet that contains selections from the New Testament. And the selections are no more than 60 pages. And that's what they read and that's what they distribute. And again, if you read the book of the family, one of the things that the author notes is that the author himself was struck by that, the, that all this, you know, um, spread the glory of Jesus around the world that the vast majority of the people who were committed to this group had never read the Bible from cover to cover and had no interest in reading the Bible from cover to cover but all they knew was that little booklet which is I mean, it's it's fascinating if you've read the booklet and then you've read so it's it's you know you you're in the same dynamics again. Okay. And seventy nine. Woe to those who write down with their own hands something which they claim to be divine writ, and then say, this is from God, in order to acquire a trifling gain, 
thereby woe then unto them for what their hands have written, and want woe unto them for all that they have may that they may have gained. So of course that's a reference to the corruption of the text of the Bible itself. However, a lot of people don't realize that this, especially the corruption of the Torah, is not a Quranic, an unprecedented Quranic accusation. As you might know, after the destruction of the temple, the original Torah or the initial writings of the scribes are destroyed and lost. And the Torah is written in the diaspora. And it is written as a process of recollection. And as I said before, that when you read the Torah, you can, you can, and analyze it as a historical document, you can absolutely sense the absolute pain and agony and bitterness of, of an oppressed people who are documenting first and foremost, their oppression, A, and their dreams and hopes that God, because they're God's chosen people, will give them victory over their oppressors eventually. And that's why when they talk about the time when God gives them victory in Deuteronomy, they fantasize absolute brutality inflicted upon their enemy. When it was written, it was fantasy. But if you look, for instance, You look at Jeremiah, this is in the Old Testament, the Torah. You look at Jeremiah chapter 23. Okay. So, I'm going to just read, the, this is uh, about chapter 23, verse um, about 20. 21. So it says, this is the Lord speaking, saying, I have not sent these prophets that they ran. 
I have not spoken to them, yet they prophesied. And they, if they had stood my counsel and had caused my people to hear my words, then they should have turned them from their evil way and from their evil and from the evil of their doings. And I uh, am I a God at hand, says the Lord, and not a God far off. Then it goes on. Yeah. Then it says, Thus shall we say, everyone to his neighbor and everyone to his brother, what has the Lord answered, and what has the Lord spoken. And the burden of the Lord shall ye mention no more, for every man's word shall be his burden. For ye have perverted the words of the living God, of the Lord of hosts, of our God. So the, the accusation or the, the theme of the, the words of the prophet being perverted, corrupted, is actually a theme found in the Torah itself. So again, I, say, I keep saying this because Muslims need to understand this. If someone comes and says the Quran is anti-Semitic and the Quran must be purged of its anti-Semitism before it's printed as they do it, say, in France, tell them, fine, but let's see what themes exist in the Quran that are actually not anchored in the Bible. Because you won't find any. I mean, the Quran corrects many things in the Bible. But all the criticisms that the Quran has were already criticisms documented either in the Torah or in the Injil in the New Testament. So, give you... This, uh, this theme of perverting the words of the Lord is throughout. I just picked one uh, example, but I'm going to give you um, another example in a second. So, Let's deal with some of these examples now. It's just that there are so many of them. Maybe I overdid it. So, the idea of of perversion and rebelliousness. So, note. Because part of what was written in the Torah is those people who had gone into Exodus were reflecting upon why God inflicted upon them the suffering that they were going through. And they were, it's like there was a duality that you read throughout the Torah. On the one hand, they're God's chosen people and God will make them prevail. But on the other hand, they are often condemning themselves 
for the failures that earned them God's wrath and the destruction of the temple. And I'll give you all, uh, uh, some examples of that. So Deuteronomy, for instance, so Deuteronomy chapter 9, when, again, God is speaking to the Israelites, or according to, and I'm, and I'm going to through, go through several examples in Deuteronomy. Um, it says, not for, the right, not for thy righteousness, or for the uprightness of thine heart, dost thou go to possess their land. But for the wickedness of these nations, the Lord thy God doth drive them out from before thee. And what he may perform, the word which the Lord swore unto thy fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No, Ismail is, is always omitted, except for one part in the Bible that I'll, I'll share with you. Understand, therefore, that the Lord thy God giveth thee not this good land to possess it for thy righteousness, but thou art a stiff-necked people. Now, stiff-necked people, this, this reference in the King James Bible is a literal translation from the Greek stiff-necked people but if you go back to the Hebrew as opposed to the Greek what what it's saying is that you are effectively an obstinate rebellious people stiff-necked which is idiomatic in Greek for a people who are rebellious or obstinate. In the King James, it preserved, the, and I'll show you uh, other examples. So, same Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 24. So it goes, uh, it's talking again to the Ezraites, it then says, Ye have been rebellious against the Lord from that day that I knew you. What I, as I said, a duality. It shows in people, but at the same time, a rebellious people. Again, this is now Deuteronomy chapter 18. Uh, no, sorry. Um, and the Lord said unto Moses, Depart, and go up hence, thou and the people which thou hast brought out, uh, out of the land of Egypt, unto land which I swear, I swore, I swore, unto Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, saying, Unto thee thy seed will I give it. And I will send an angel before thee, and I will drive out the Canaanites, and the Amorites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Hevites, etc., Unto a land flowing with milk and honey, for I shall not go up in the midst of thee, for thou art a stiff-necked people. Again, this is Exodus. Lest I consume thee in the way. Thou are a rebel. This is what, it's, if you have, didn't catch the meaning, it's, the Lord is telling the Israelites, I give you a land 
and I will vanquish the people living on this land, this land that he's talking about is Palestine, which, as I said, as opposed to the Quran, Quran says enter Palestine humbly and so on. The, the Bible often talks about uh, slaughtering the people who are in this land. Anyway, so it said, so, but the Lord says, I am going to give you this land and it's a blessing, but it's not because you deserve it. It's because you are God's chosen people, although you don't deserve it. Why? Because you are a rebellious people. Again, in Exodus, you see the same type of language. And he said, if now I have found grace in thy sight, O Lord, my Lord, I pray thee, go amongst us. For it is a rebellious people, and pardon our iniquity. For, for we are a rebellion people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us from, th from the thine inheritance. There, yeah, I'll give you just one more example, and then let's move on. Um, they're all very similar. So it says, they're all very similar. It's, it's the same, I mean, and of course, in, in the literal translation of stiff-necked people, the, the nuance of rebelliousness that you find in Hebrew is is lost. But my, my point is, is that both the idea of having perverted the message of the prophets and the Israelites as an, as, as having rebelled against the message is not a uniquely Quranic theme. What it is used coherently in the Quran as opposed to the Bible, because in the Bible, you're always confused. Well, if there is perversion of the message of the Lord, and as we will, as I showed you last halakha, and I will show you another example of it, and there is killing of the prophets of the Lord, and if there is stubbornness and obstinance in receiving the message of the Lord, then why does God Although in the Bible, God is so angry sometimes at the Israelites that he calls Jerusalem the land of harlots and prostitutes. God is so angry at, at sometimes that he comes down and he refuses to bless the Israelites and Moses has, uh, sorry, and Jacob has to wrestle with him and force God to bless the Israelites. Uh, in the Bible, you always ask, well, why are they God's chosen people? If, if that's the theme in the Bible, the Quran comes in and puts it coherently within a moral dynamic that a people among others who receive the covenant, just as you Muslims are receiving the covenant now, and this covenant is not about anyone being chosen or anyone being promised to land, but about a, as we will see in a second again, immoral job 
and that there were repeated historical failures and that the problem, there are other people before the Israelites who received the covenant and failed. But the problem is the insistence of the Israelites that they are God's chosen people and that they are living proof that the message of Muhammad is not true because they are God's chosen people. Okay, so now look for instance. So now after Seventy-nine, where Allah invokes this theme of perverting God's message. Allah deals with another common claim that existed in in early Israelite literature, and that is. And the remnants of that exist in the Talmud, that the Israelites, regardless of what they do, this is verse 80 now, regardless of what they do, even if they're damned, under no circumstance will they be in hellfire. Some Israelite tradition said seven days, other Israelite traditions said 14 days. And this is the reference. So they say, well, even if we go to hellfire, you, and in fact, in some hadith, they tell Muslims, even, why should we convert? Even if we go to hell, we are going only for a short period of time, but you are going to hell for eternity. And so do, do you see how that idea of its chosen people? Now, well, anyway, I'll, I'll postpone this and I'll get to it. Okay. So, Bella, man kasaba sayyatan wa ahatat bi khati'atu fa'ulaika ashabun nar hum fiya khalidun. This is 81. So, again, the Quran affirms that no, it, it is not about privilege and it's not about a certain selected group of people who are entitled to not go to hellfire except for a short period of time. It is about what you've earned. And this is, of course, 81. Okay, then look at 83. What was the covenant taken from the Israelites? What was their covenant? The covenant was, you shall worship none but God, 
you shall do good unto your parents you will honor your parents and kinsfolk and you will do good by orphans and the poor and that you will speak husna the muhammad asad translates it as kindly but husna speak by husna means that you will speak righteously morally that when you speak you're not going to speak about my tribe my race my family my wealth you are going to speak about principles morality and you shall be constant in prayer and you shall spend in charity now if you compare these elements of what the quran says and this is where i tell you the quran departs diametrically from the bible because these are never the elements of the covenant in the bible the covenant in the torah is always about you are descendants of such and such you are entitled to this land and god will smite the people of this in this land and give you this land that morality speak is a unique feature of the quran if only muslims understood the religion now if you compare the elements of the covenant that the quran speaks about given to the israelites now remember the revelation in mecca does it remind you of anything it's identical to the covenant given to muslims identical the honoring of parents the honoring of your kinsfolk the taking care of the destitute the taking care of the orphan the prayer the charity the core elements for the covenant so in, you learn very quickly that it is not about chosen anything it is about a moral position we use words like righteousness or sarat mustaqim and so on but you break it down to its core elements and what is the issue that the Quran has, especially with the Jewish tribes in Medina? Now, look at this. ثُمَّ أَنْتُمْ هَؤُلَاءِ تَقْتُلُونَ أَنفُسَكُمْ وَتُخْرِجُونَ فَرِيقًا مِنْكُمْ مِنْ دِيَارِهِمْ تَظَاهَرُونَ عَلَيْهِمْ بِالْإِثْمِ وَالْعِدْوَانِ وَإِنْ يَأْتُوكُمْ أَصَارًا تُفَادُوهُمْ وَهُوَ مُحَرَّمٌ عَلَيْكُمْ إِخْرَاجُهُمْ أَفَتُؤْمِنُونَ بِبَعْضِ الْكِتَابِ وَتَكْفِرُونَ بِبَعْضٍ فَمَا فَمَا جَزَاءُ مَنْ يَفْعَلُ ذَلِكَ مِنْكُمْ إِلَّا خِزْيٌ فِي الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا وَيَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ 
يردون إلى أشد العذاب وما الله بغافل عما تعملون. This is 85. So this is critical. Look. And so after and we accepted your covenant from you. The covenant you had with God is what? That you would not shed one another's blood and will not drive one another from your homelands, whereupon you acknowledged it, you accepted this covenant, and there to bear witness to that covenant even now. And yet it is you who slay one another and drive some of your own people up from their homelands. And if they come to you as captives, you ransom them, although the very act of driving them away has been unlawful from the beginning. Do you then believe in some parts of the divine writ and deny the truth of other parts? What then could be the reward of those among you who do such things but ignominy in the life of this world on the day and on the day of resurrection commitment to most grievous suffering? For God is not unmindful of what you do. Okay, so what is the Quran talking about here? You've noticed in the Bible, God says, I will destroy the Canaanites, the Amorites, the whatever, the, the, all the tribes in Palestine. The Quran has a completely diametrically opposite outlook. The Quran says the covenant, some commentators of the Quran understood this unfortunately to mean that God is saying to the Israelites that you Israelites don't kill one another, Israelite against Israelite, and you Israelite don't eject yourself, your, your, each other from your homes. As some, like Razi, noted, no, what it's saying is you don't kill one another, meaning whether Israelite or not Israelite, and you don't eject each other from your homes, whether Israelite or non Israelite. Why? Because the tribes in living in Medina as I told you before, had become immersed in profiteering off the war. And Banu Qurayza often allied itself with the Aus. And Banu Qunaynaqa and Banu Nadir often allowed itself with the Khasraj. And arming both sides so that they can, you can make a profit of people killing each other and people taking the homes of each other or, or um, usurping each other's homes. And on top of that, when there are captives, providing the cash to ransom captains and making a profit of providing 
fluidity, the liquidity, sorry. So, because that's big business, right? Till, like, like our day today, war is big business. You can make a lot of money from war. And the Quran comes and says, this is a huge moral failure because part of your covenant was none of that. And what, but, but it's not just talking about the tribes in Medina. It is talking about a general theme. And without a doubt, it is also commenting upon the biblical attitude of, well, these people, you are God's chosen people, so you can drive these people out of their homes without, without pause, without a conscience, uh, which you find repeatedly in the Bible, especially the Old Testament. That, you know, you can smite these people, you can enslave, you can kill all the men, you can enslave all the women, you can, etc., etc., which, again, you find, all you have to do is just read Deuteronomy and you find all the references to that. So, and, again, the Quran says that there are a minority of Israelites who said that this type of um, um, this 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 logic of permission to to profiteer off war? or to kill people because they are not the right tribe or not the chosen people or something. There, there's a minority that took a moral position against that, but the mainstream, that was not their position. Now, of course, it can't be, it can't escape anyone's notice. As so many of the scholars who were very critical of the civil war that broke out, um, especially during the rise of the Amawid um, dynasty, the outlook of the, it can't escape that compare what the Quran says to the Israelites to what the Quran would say to Muslims today. Kill each other, drive each other out of your homes, meaning that you, you don't care whether it's right or wrong, you only care about your material gains, and if your material gains meant you should commit aggression, you go ahead and do it. That's the ظاهرون عليهم بالإثم والعدوان. Who does that today? I mean, it, it, you don't find today 
in our age today, you don't find Israelites being the ones who kill each other, who drive each other out of their homes, who capture each others in war and hold each others as prisoners of war and mistreat each other. But you look at Muslims today, whether the Iran and Iraq war, whether what's going on in Yemen, whether what's going on in Libya, whether, you mean, the examples are too numerous. And you completely see why Allah comes in and underscores it is your moral relationship to the covenant, not status, that determines your position with God. And you notice again, أَفَكُلَّمَا جَاءَكُمْ رَسُولٌ بِمَا لَا تَهْوَى أَنفُسَكُمْ إِسْتَكْبَرْتُمْ فَفَرِيقًا كَذَّبْتُمْ وَفَرِيقًا تَقْتُلُونَ and so this is 87 and the theme of killing prophets and I, I've, I've already said this in the past halakha um, but because just of how oblivious Muslims are maybe I'll so again, what I underscored is that this is not um, <clears throat> a Quranic accusation, but it is something that is found, again, in the biblical tradition. So in the New Testament, Thessalonians um, 1, which is, wait, what page is that? Twelve In Thessalonians 1, uh, this is uh, around 14, 15. For you, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For you also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, of the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us and they please not God and are contrary to all men. So, the, the, as this quote shows, uh, in the New Testament, the, the, not just the accusation that they've killed Jesus Christ, but the, which so many Christians conveniently ignore that that's actually in the New Testament but also of killing previous prophets. In Matthew,
in Matthew chapter 23, verse 34, um, it says, Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes. This is God speaking to the Israelites. Wherefore, behold, I sent unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you killed and crucified, and some of them you scourged in your synagogues and persecuted them from city to city. The, upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zacharias, son of Barchais, and whom you slew between the temple and the ark altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, thou hast killed the prophets and stones them which are sent unto thee, often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. So, that theme, and again, so, the, the Israelites in Medina, the Jews in Medina, are, and we, we'll see an example of this actually in, in a second, what the Quran does surprises them because their engagement with the natives of Medina was dealing with a largely illiterate society. Much of what the biblical tradition itself said about the Israelites was something that they did not share with the Arabs. And the, their dynamics with the, uh, the uh, natives of Medina was the, there was a constant theme of eventually there will be a prophet sent to lead us um, and you, non-Israelites, will be, when that Messiah comes, we will be victorious and we will be dominant. And so this sort of very specific Quranic exposure of what the Jews in Medina themselves knew existed in their tradition. And here we're talking about not those who were illiterate and had not, but the actual, the, the scribes or the rabbis who were actually knew what their own tradition said, um, was one of the most powerful impacts of Surah Al-Baqarah. It's like you are coming in and you are exposing a, a, a concealed secret and you're saying here I, I know about all this tradition and here of it is what I you know the, the type of uh, uh, um, accusations that the Quran confirms and the corrections that the Quran makes as we will also see again another example in a second Okay. Okay. So then, وَلَمَّا جَاءَهُمْ كِتَابٌ 
من عند الله مصدق لما معهم وكانوا به يستفتحون على الذين كفروا فلما جاءهم ما عرفوا كفروا به فلعنة الله على الكافرين This is 89 So So when a new revelation came to God confirming the truth already in their possession that وَكَانُوا مِنْ قَبْلُ يَسْتَفْتِحُونَ عَلَى الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا So, and before that, they, يَسْتَفْتِحُونَ is, is, um, is an amazing expression. يَسْتَفْتِحُونَ is like saying, bragging about a coming future victory. So, before that, they used to cite their own tradition, in their polemics with the Arabs before Islam, telling them, we are superior to you because we are God's chosen people and we have a Messiah that's going to come and that is going to lead us in victory against you. And not even victory because it's not necessarily that they were in a, you know, but in, in a dominant relationship over you, that we, were, we, will, we will become your masters. وَكَانُوا مِنْ قَبْلِ ذَلِكَ يَسْتَفْتِحُونَ عَلَى الَّذِينَ كَفْرُوا فَلَعْنَةُ اللَّهِ عَلَى الْكَافِرِينَ So it's sort of again exposing the propaganda. God saying, I know that you would ignore the fact that your own book says that this coming Messiah is not going to be an Israelite but is going to be a cousin of the Israelites, a, a son of a brother. Um, and I know that you used to brag, citing your own tradition, concealing whatever you wanted from that tradition, and sharing only what you wanted as a polemic against your enemies. Okay. Um, Ninety-one again. The, it's a, a very similar theme, um, but for the interest of time, what time is it? Okay. And you notice in in ninety-two and ninety-three, again the Quran goes back repeating the theme of. Uh, the heifer, the theme of Atur, which we've discussed in the last halaqa, um, until we get to 94. When you see the Quran raising an issue, then addressing a whole bunch of things, and then coming back to the issue again and flagging it once again, that is often an indication of how pressing that polemic was at the time that the Quran was revealed. And so then in 93, Qul in kanat lakum min dunin nas, fatamanna ul maut in kuntum sadiqeen. 
ولن يتمنوه أبدا بما قدمت أيديهم والله عليم بالظالمين ولتجدنهم أحرص الناس على حياة من الذين ومن الذين أشركوا يود أحدهم لو يعمر ألف سنة وما هو بمزحزحه من العذاب أن يعمر والله بصير بما يعملون so this is up to from 93 to 96 okay so this is after reminding them again of the story of the heifer and the story of or, or actually the golden calf um, and the um, then we get to um, say if the afterlife is to is in fact to be for you alone to the exclusion of all people as you claim then long for death if what you say is true but never will they long for it or pray for it because they are aware of what their hands have sent ahead in this world and God has full knowledge of evildoers. And though we'll most certainly find that they cling to life more eagerly than any other people, even more than those who are bent or ascribing divinity to other beings beside God, every one of them would love to live a thousand years, although the grant of long life could not save them from suffering in the hereafter, for God sees all they do. So, this again goes back to a constant polemic which the Jews claimed that only the Israelites will attain salvation and no one else will enter Eden or the equivalent of Eden in, in, in the uh, Torah, which is basically... Um, I mean, it's it's the same theme. It's, uh, the 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 word Jannah is basically a life of bliss. It's the same theme, whatever the word used for it is. But anyway, and that challenge that if you are really, truly, as you claim, close to Allah, then. Pray for death, because if your conscience is unsettled, you cling to earthly life, and you find death scary, and something that arouses your anxiety and fear. Um, And again, as we'll talk about later, inshallah, when we go through the moral lessons of Surah Al-Baqarah, this is not, it's, it's, it's raised in a constant of a polemic with Jewish tribes, but it carries a message for all of us all the time. If your attitude towards life on earth is that this is all you know and you cling onto it as if you want it to last forever 
that's an alarm. That's a warning sign. Okay. Then, notice. Man kana aduwan lillahi wa malaikatihi wa ruslihi wa jibreela wa mikail fa inna allaha aduwan lil kafirin. 98. Whoever is enemy of God and God's angels and God's messengers, including Gabriel and Michael, then they are God's enemy, for God is a, for God is the opponent of all those who deny the truth. The, the occasion for this is that in the Jewish tradition, in the Talmudic traditions, um, Michael is often identified as the bearer of good news. And Gabriel is often identified as the bearer of bad omens and bad news. And so Jews at the time of the Prophet would claim that Michael is a friend of the Jews, the friend of its chosen people, while Gabriel is, well, it, it differed. Some said that he was an enemy. Some said that, some even denied he was an angel. Some said that he was an angel, but one who is inferior to Michael. And that polemic entered when the Jews in Medina heard that, knew that Gabriel was the angel that brought the Quran to the Prophet, they used that clinic saying, well, if this was a true Prophet, revelation would have been brought to him by Michael, not by Gabriel. And that's the occasion for this. Okay. وَلَمَّا جَاءَهُمْ رَسُولٌ مِنْ عِنْدِ اللَّهِ مُصَدِّقٌ لِمَا مَعْهُمْ نَبَذَ فَرِيقٌ مِنَ الَّذِينَ أُوتُوا الْكِتَابِ كِتَابَ اللَّهِ وَرَاءَ ظُهُورِهِمْ كَأَنَّهُمْ لَا يَعْلَمُونَ And even, this is 101, and even now when there has come unto them an apostle from God confirming the truth already in their possession, some of them who were granted revelation before cast the divine writ behind their backs as though unaware of what it says. Um, oh, I, I, uh, darn. Okay, I, I forgot one thing. If we can go back to verse 88. Um, وَقَالُوا قُلُوبُنَا غُلَّفٌ بَلْ لَعَنَهُمُ اللَّهُ بِكُفْرِهِمْ فَقَلِيلًا مَا يُؤْمِنُونَ 88 That expression that I pause at it because of قُلُوبُنَا غُلَّفٌ Part of the polemic in Medina was that 
the scribes, the the the, the rabbinic class, or the class of leaders in Medina, of, of, of the Jewish tribes, responded to the prophet's message by saying that we have already attained full knowledge from God, everything we need to know. We already learned and mastered from God. And so there is no room for anything further you bring Muhammad. And that's what Qulubuna Hullafun means, that uh, it, it literally means closed, but it's the issue is not, it, it, the expression is, is very specific. It is not that we're just closed because we're obstinate, but because we have everything we need. Now the reason I underscore this is again because the ethical moral message from it that many people in fact their attitude towards knowledge towards moral learning is well I know what I know and I'm fine and the Quran not just in Surah Al-Baqarah but as we will see repeatedly underscores this as a major moral failure. That attitude of, well, why should I learn further? What's the point? Okay. And let's go back again. Now notice verse 102, because I'm going to pause at this for a little bit. Let me just first read the, the quick translation. So after that God notes again that when we sent you something confirming what you know to be the truth, you ignore it, you deny it. This is 101, as I said, and then we get to 102. And you follow instead that which the evil ones used to, that what which the no, sorry. And follow instead that which the demons used to practice during Solomon's reign. For it was not Solomon who denied the truth, but the demons denied it by teaching people sorcery. And they followed that which has come down through the two angels in Babylon, Harut and Marut. Although those two never taught it to anyone without first declaring, we are but a temptation to evil. But do not then deny God's truth. And they learn from these two how to create discord between a man and his wife 
But whereas, whereas they can harm none, thereby saved by God's leave. They acquire a knowledge that only harms themselves and does not benefit them. Although they know indeed that he who acquires this knowledge shall have no share in the good lot in the afterlife or in the life to come. For vile indeed is the art or the sorcery for which they have sold their own selves had they but known it. And had they but believed and been conscious of God, reward from God would indeed have brought them good had they but known it. Okay. So here... وَاتَّبَعُوا مَا تَتْلُوا الشَّيَاطِينُ عَلَى مُلْكِ سُلَيْمَانِ وَمَا كَفَرَ سُلَيْمَانُ وَلَكِنَ الشَّيَاطِينَ كَفَرُوا يُعَلِّمُونَ النَّاسَ السِّحْرَ وَمَا أُنْزِلَ عَلَى الْمَلَكَيْنِ بِبَابِلَ وَهَارُوتَ وَمَارُوتَ وَمَا يُعَلِّمَانِ مِنْ أَحَدٍ حَتَّى يَقُولَ إِنَّمَا نَحْنُ فِتْنَةٌ فَلَا تَكْفُرُ فَتَعَلَّمُونَ مِنْهُمَا مَا يُفَرِّقُونَ بِهِ بَيْنَ الْمَرْءِ وَزَوْجِهِ وما هم بضارين به من أحد إلا بإذن الله ويتعلمون ما يضرهم ولا ينفعهم وقد علموا لمن اشتراه, لمن اشتراه ما له في الآخرة من خلاق ولبئس ما شروا به أنفسهم لو كانوا يعلمون So here the Quran deals in part with the legacy of Sulaiman and there is a very specific issue with Sulaiman. The best way to, to introduce this is to get a sample of how the Bible deals with Sulaiman or Solomon. So in the Torah, because you you can't really understand the Quranic or, or understand what the issue is unless you have some background. So. In Kings, Kings 1, chapter 11, is a good place to... This is, a, of course, in the Old Testament, the Torah. So, it says, But King Solomon, notice, he's identified in, in the Torah always as king. But King Solomon loved many strange women, together with the daughter of Pharaoh, women of Myobites and Ammonites and Edomites and Zidonians and Hittites, of the nations concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, You shall not go into them, neither shall they come in unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon cleaved unto these in love. So what the Bible is saying is that God told King Solomon, do not go to any women other than the women of Israel. And King Solomon, however, was attracted to all types of women uh, of all ethnic backgrounds. And Solomon ignored God's command not to be attracted to these women. 
and he had 700 wives. So Solomon, Solomon in the Torah had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. 700 wives and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. Turned away his heart means he turned away from the God of Israel. He no longer cared about God of Israel. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. So he started worshiping other gods. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Eshotoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Malcolm, the, abo the abomination of the Ammonites. So he started worshiping other gods. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and, when, and went not fully after the Lord as did David his father. Okay. Then did Solomon build an, build an high place for Shemosh, the abomination of the, the Moabs, and in the hill that is before Jerusalem, and for Moloch, the abomination of the children of Ammon. Moloch is, is not just a, um, a, 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 not just a deity, but he is actually a demon. So according to the Torah, Solomon started worshiping Moloch who is, when, it, when the, uh, the Torah says the abomination of, it means the demon. Okay. Um, and the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice, and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he kept not that which the Lord commanded. So, what do you understand from this? In the Torah, King Solomon, who is the son of Dawood had 700 wives, 300 concubines, and although King Solomon saw God and talked to God according to the Torah twice, and although King Solomon, according to the biblical tradition, is generally regarded as a prophet, because of all the women he married or owned, started worshipping other gods and even demons, and turned away from God. And... Although that happened, he can, he can, the, the children or the descendants of King Solomon continue to hold the line of prophecy. Now, so in the Israelite tradition, there are manuscripts that survive that according to the Israelite tradition where what the deities or the demons like Moloch had taught Solomon 
the secret language of black magic. And this, these manuscripts that allegedly were transmitted from the demons to Solomon are used by sorcerers before Islam and at the time of Islam to do all types of things. Now, the Quran has a completely different perspective on Sulaiman Some Israelite scholars reached the point of saying that Sulaiman started out as a prophet but died not a prophet at all but simply a king while others insisted that just by simply being an Israelite and among the chosen people he continued to enjoy his status as a prophet even though he worshipped other gods than God. Now, this is not unusual in the Talmud, in the Torah, because in the Torah, the Israelites often go back to idolatry. That's a consistent theme in the Torah. And it is likely that the Israelites often would be, would follow a prophet follow monotheism but then revert back to idolatry because of the power of the culture of idolatry at, the, at, at that time. Anyway, now the treatment of the Quran or the way that the Quran deals with the Prophet Sulaiman is very different because according to the Quran, Sulaiman doesn't rebel against God, Sulaiman doesn't worship other gods, so a man doesn't become an idolatrator. And Suleiman doesn't, in fact, Suleiman, in the treatment of the Quran, is a blessed prophet who stays on the path of God throughout. And the Quran here deals with a reality that was very widespread in the Near East and very widespread generally in the ancient world. And, you know, if, if you're ever interested, read something about the history of sorcery and magic. And that is the, the widespread culture of, of using sorcery. And what the Quran says here is that مَا تَبْلُ الشَّيَاطِينُ عَلَى مُلْكِ سُلَيْمَانِ that the demons did not teach Sulaiman the language of sorcery but taught the, the Kingdom Mulk, the the it's like the uh, the people of Sulaiman and the Islamic tradition from Hadith attributed to the Prophet is well I mean the different narratives but basically uh, 
is that uh, Sulaiman, although having power over jinn, does hides, conceals. This is the, 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 the traditions that you get from a lot of hadith, although their, their authenticity is, is suspect. Is that hides the um, uh, the parchments that has the most dangerous uh, formulas of jinn language, and according to these traditions, uh, that they're 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 hid under his throne, and after Sulaiman Salam dies, these parchments are dug up and disseminated and used in black magic. But that the Quran defends the Prophet Sulaiman against the charge that he had anything to do with this disseminating of this knowledge. Okay. And this reference, يُعَلِّمُونَ النَّاسَ السِّحْرِ وَمَا there is a debate in the Islamic tradition. Harut wa Marut. In some traditions, it is claimed that these were two angels. And that these two angels, according to the narratives that I don't think are authentic, um, that these two angels... Tell God, human beings are truly disgusting. They're always doing what's wrong. They're always doing, they're always uh, spilling blood and disobeying you and committing sin. Um, if we were in their place, we we would not be so weak. And so, God tells them. as it, uh, responding to that by saying, okay, well, I'm going to give you free will and see what you do. Free will is, is such a serious charge that not everyone can handle anyway, that I'm going to give you free will and send you to earth and see what you do. And then Harut and Marut are sent to, to earth and having free will, of course, they fail, and they fail miserably. They commit all types of sins. And, and not only do they sin, but they even go to Babylon, which was known for its sorcerers and black magic, and they teach the king of Babylon... Um, a corpus of black magic that becomes the plague of humanity for even to our day. Alternative narratives say that no, Harut and Marut were not angels, not fallen angels, but Harut and Marut were actually rulers in Babylon, and that Babylon itself was known as a hotbed of black magic and sorcery and idol worship and 
a, a human sacrifices and all types of practices like that and that Harut and Marut as prince as princesses in Babylon embraced the learning of black magic by consorting with jinn and disseminated this knowledge okay now taking a step back in the islamic tradition there is also a debate among scholars quranic commentators who said that black magic doesn't exist as a reality among those were for instance abu hanifa who said that um were students of abu hanifa attributed that to him that black magic is nothing but sleight of hand and that black magic does not alter the nature of reality and others that said that no black magic in fact alters the nature of reality it actually violates the normal or alters the normal laws of causation by eliciting the participation of jinn uh, that then can cause real harm. That debate you find ongoing throughout the Islamic tradition. My view is that in fact black magic is a reality that it does alter the laws of causation by invoking energies and powers that we don't fully understand except that it does call upon demons and demons do participate in when these rituals are performed and the logic of these rituals is to manipulate the existing energies in existence. What are often known, what was often in, in black magic referred to as the Solomonic text, uh, texts. Uh, if you read people like Alistair Crowley who claims that knowledge of black magic came from Solomon, that's a very Judeo-Christian outlook. Black magic has nothing to do with the Prophet Sulaiman It is a corruption of or a distortion of things that go back to that time but to say that somehow this is knowledge that goes back to the Prophet Sulaiman is is directly against the Quran. I mean, it's against what the Quran says. The the reference in the Quran that sorcerers. I can tell you from experience that no sorcerer in 
in Muslim countries, whether you meet them in Iraq or Egypt or Morocco, whenever they um, do anything, black magic is a hodgepodge of using God's name and religious symbolism, but a distortion and a corruption of religious symbolism. So when the Quran tells us that they don't that whenever saucers teach black magic, they say la takfur, because they're often black magic is presents itself as a religious practice, as a practice in piety, and in fact, if you ever go to saucer, the 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 first thing they'll tell you. It's everything I do is with is by, through Allah's power and Allah's permission, and you find that they they use the Quran, but they they distort. So, for instance, they write the Quran from backwards to forwards or upside down, or it's taking the natural order of things and corrupting the natural order of things. And. You find this in the Quranic reference. فَيَتَعَلَّمُونَ مِنْهُمَا مَا يُفَرِّقُونَ بِهِ بَيْنَ الْمَرْءِ وَزَوْجِهِ وَمَا هُمْ بِضَارِّينَ بِهِ مِنْ أَحَدٍ إِلَّا بِإِذْنِ اللَّهِ That, in fact, black magic, as was in the past, as it is today, was often used to create discord between human beings um, or to create conflict or to create hatred. And, but... Ultimately, power of God is prevalent. And the power of God is stronger than anything that black magic can bring. And the Quranic warning, and this is, unfortunately, it, it, um, when you visit certain places in Egypt or Morocco and, or Iraq, and you find how widespread the practice of black magic is, the Quranic warning that anyone that deals with sorcery and black magic has, as far as Islam is concerned, that's a major sin. That's kufr. It's a, it's a, it's a complete complete abomination to the faith. And then when it says وَلَبِئْسَ مَا شَرَوْ بِهِ أَنفُسَهُمْ This is a reference to a common reality in black magic is that sorcerers will the price that you to sorcerers is it starts out with money but ultimately quickly escalates to your soul itself and so that reference to what um, how horrible what they've purchased that what, what they that, how the, the, the condemnation of what the way that they've sold themselves to it. So,
placing this in context, A is to defend the to defend the reputation or the status of Sulaiman salam who in the Jewish tradition is seen as someone who in fact became an idolater and rebelled against God. But two, among the polemics of the Jews of Medina is that we have, and, and Arabs were very much afraid of sorcery and black magic. And among the polemics of the Jews of Medina is that we will defeat, if, if you follow this man, we will use our knowledge of, the, of Solomonic magic to bewitch the prophet and to place curses upon you. And the Quran comes in, A, making it clear that, the, that after Islam, black magic in all its forms is strictly prohibited. But B, that God's power prevails over all of it. And that those who deal in the black magic end up condemning themselves before all else. Unfortunately, the among the traditions that seeped into Islam, we have a record of the threat that the Jewish tribes articulated against the Prophet, saying that we will defeat this Prophet by bewitching him. We will put a curse upon him. When a number of Jewish transmitters converted to Islam, among the things that they transmitted is that they in fact did succeed in putting a spell upon the Prophet and bewitching him. And unfortunately, many Muslim authorities accepted these traditions as authentic rather than understanding that they were part of the polemics of a political battle. So you have the accusation at the, at, right after the Hijrah, or you have the, the charge that we were going to put a spell upon your prophet. And lo and behold, certain individuals convert to Islam and they say, in fact, they did succeed in putting the spell upon the prophet. And many Muslim authorities said, well, we can't doubt their, their, their conversion. And the fact that their Jewish is irrelevant. Well, yes, it's irrelevant. But you, what's not irrelevant is the political context of that charge. When you say that these Jewish sorcerers did in fact succeed in putting a spell upon the Prophet. And although you come and say, well, you know, after the Prophet was bewitched for a day or two days or three days or a week, depending on the report you read, and it comes and then the, the, the Gabriel or some reports say a month. 
Some reports say 40 days. That then God came and removed it. It impeaches the credibility of the prophet. That in fact, when the when the when the Quran tells you that this black magic cannot harm anyone except by God's permission, that immediately begs the question: Well, why would God permit the prophet to become bewitched? Why would God permit the prophet, the prophet to have a spell placed on him? It blows my mind that till today there are Muslims who repeat these narratives about the prophet being put under a spell. Although the very purpose of Surah Al-Baqarah addressing this issue directly is Yes, to ban black magic. Yes, to 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 defend the Prophet Sulaiman But more importantly, to tell you this is all within God's province and God's control, and that the idea that you are vulnerable before demons, as used to be the belief of old is something of the past and that's what empowers some although i don't you know that's not the, the the conviction that i have but that's what empowers people like abu hanifa and many other or razi to say there is no such thing as black magic that it's all a sleight of the hand instead of going verse by verse i'm going to um summarize up to up to verse because all of this has to do with the situational positioning of uh, al-Baqarah up to verse uh, 124 which then Surah al-Baqarah from that point on take shifts themes um, but before I, I do that uh, let's take a two-minute break because I need to use the restroom. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Okay. So, for just temporarily, I'm going to skip over 106 Ayat al-Nasr and come back to it and then the the rest of the polemic is that note 111 وقالوا لن يدخل الجنة إلا من كان هودا أو نصارا تلك أمانيهم قل هاتوا برهانكم إن كنتم صادقين that the claim by both Jews and Christians is that only Jannah is reserved only for them. And Allah responds to this by saying, well, where is your evidence that this is true? This is 111. At 1.12, Now, Note, 
Well, actually, uh, before I, I deal with this, وقالت look at one thirteen. وقالت اليهود ليست النصارى على شيء وقالت النصارى ليست اليهود على شيء وهم يتلون الكتاب كذلك قال الذين لا يعلمون مثل قولهم فالله يحكم بينهم يوم القيامة فيما كانوا فيه اختلفون. That both Christians say Jews don't know what they're talking about. And Jews say Christians don't know what they're talking about. وهم يتلون الكتاب كذلك قال الذين لا يعلمون مثل قولهم. And now let's see how this is translated. One thirteen. So the Christians said that the that the Jews the Jews assert the Christians are wrong. They don't know what they're talking about. Jews say the same thing about Christians, and both recite the the divine writ. And like unto them, what they say have always spoken those who are devoid of knowledge. Okay. Now, you can easily do as many commentators did and say, well, it's what's saying is Jews are wrong, Christians are wrong, and Muslims must be right. But look at the language specifically again. It says, this exclusionary attitude is an error of those consistently of those before them. The clear import of the of this is that the exclusionary attitude is wrong. Now go back now to one twelve. Bala man aslama wajhahu lilla wa huwa muhsin falahu ajruhu. This is right after criticizing the Jews for saying we will go to heaven and the Christians won't. And criticizing the Christians for saying heaven is reserved exclusively for us. But then it says what? That who turns his face in surrender to God. Aslama wajahu is the real meaning of Islam. That you turn your face towards God and you do good, then you have your reward and you should not fear and have nothing to be sad about. Wala hum yahzanun. For the Quran to come before this, as we've said, says that Christians, Jews, and the Sabians have their reward with God if they do good. 
And then here, to come and say, well, the Christian says heaven is for them, Jews say heaven is for them, but in fact, that who turns their face towards God, aslama wajahu lillah, means you live piously, you, that you here surrender is not in the uh, in the in the in the technical sense of surrender that develops later in Islamic tradition, but that you live humbly before God, you accept God, and you live a moral, virtuous life, and then this is affirmed by the verse right after it by saying that the Jews says Christians have not, don't know what they're talking about and Christians said Jews don't know what they're talking about and the problem is is that those before them did the same thing the clear import of the message here and is that Those who are Jewish or Christian or whatever faith that live believing in God, surrendering in God, surrendering to God, live humbly and submissively before God and live virtually, you cannot deny the possibility of the reward with God. It's, it's clear. Now, if you haven't thought of this already, for within the polemics of the time, for the Quran to come and say this blows your mind. Because what the new message should come and say is, you are all wrong, this is God's new message, you follow it or you go to hell. That's how you get converts. That's how humans handle a new message. You either follow me or you're doomed. To come and say, ah, uh, you know, you got it wrong about Solomon. Ah, uh, you know, you, you got it, you, you, those who preferred to live submissively and, and, and um, and subserviently to other human beings in Egypt and rejected the revelation, well, they were wrong. Ah, uh, you know, you know, the, uh, you're at, you're, you got the, the covenant wrong about this because God wanted you to honor your parents and honor, honor your, your kinsfolk and God wanted you to take care of the poor and God wanted you to pray and God wanted you to pay your arms. And, you know, those who say that Jews are going to hell, those who say that Christians are going to hell, they're both wrong, and this type of attitude is wrong. And, you know, those Christians who live virtuously, they're going to be okay, and they have nothing to fear. And those Jews who live virtuously, they have nothing to fear. And those who turn their God submissively and humbly, and then live virtually, they have nothing to fear. This is not the way a human propagates a new message. This is a remarkably nuanced position. 
remarkably morally nuanced. And then, look, وَمَنْ أَظْلَمُ مِمَّنْ مَنْعَ مَسَاجِدَ اللَّهِ أَنْ يُذْكَرَ فِيهَا اسْمُهُ وَسَعَ فِي خَرَابِهَا أُولَئِكَ مَا كَانَ لَهُمْ أَنْ يَدْخُلُوهَا إِلَّا خَائِفِينَ لَهُمْ فِي الدُّنْيَا خِزِيٌ وَلَهُمْ فِي الْآخِرَةِ عَذَابٌ عَظِيمٌ This is 1.14 So, hence, who could be more wicked than those who bar the mention of God's names from any of his houses of worship? Muhammad Asa translated exactly right. Not the mosque, any of the houses of worship, and strive for their ruin, although they have no right to enter them save in fear of God. For them in this world there is ignominy in store, and for them in the life to come, awesome and suffering. Quranic commentators didn't know at this early stage what the Quran was talking about. Some said, well, it's talking about the kuffar in Mecca. But the problem was the kuffar in Mecca didn't really want, didn't really want to destroy the Haram al-Makki, in, in, in the Kaaba. Some said, well, the Quran is talking about the destruction of the temple by the Romans. Both are right and both are wrong. Because it's clear what the Quran is saying is that yes, there is a new message, but places of worship are immune from harm. And this is precisely why although Muslims came into Medina and although Jewish tribes made it, they had all these polemics back and forth, and some of the polemics are incendiary. Like, for instance, we're going to put a curse on your prophet. But places of worship were inviolable. inviolable. Not a single synagogue was touched in Medina. And it became a core matter of practice that, and in Islamic law, that even as they conquered Syria and Iraq and Egypt, places of worship were untouchable. This is so much so that Muslims erred on the side of preserving places of worship like in Palestine, that they weren't sure belonged to either Christians or Jews and belonged to cults that had bizarre systems of belief, some of them actually. But the obsession that grew or, or the that extremely cautious attitude towards places of worship arose from it started, the genesis is in this injunction. All places of worship in the Quran are referred to as masajid. And it was clear that not only are you not allowed 
to generalize about whether Jews are going to go to hell or not, or Christians are going to hell or not, or even if you're going to go to heaven or not, you as Muslims. But in addition to that, you cannot transgress upon a place of worship. And then, وَلِلَّهِ الْمَشْرِقُ وَالْمَغْرِبِ فَإِنَّمَا تُوَلُّوا فَثَمَّ وَجْهُ اللَّهِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ وَاسِعٌ عَلِيمٌ This is 115. This ayah becomes important, it's cited repeatedly when Muslims change their Qibla from the Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem, right? to the Kaaba in Mecca. But this ayah was revealed before the change of the Qibla. And some commentators insisted that this ayah must have been revealed after the change of the Qibla, although the evidence for that is not existent. But the fact that Allah is telling you Right after it says, Allah says, you cannot transgress upon places of worship. And then Allah says that, remember, that if you think God exists in one place alone, we'll think again because God doesn't exist in one place alone. The temptation was for Muslims being persecuted and being under the enormous pressure that they were in is to have said, well, God exists only in our mosque in Medina. But the import of the ayah is clear. You can't assume that God is only for you Muslims. You can't do what the Jews did and you can't do what the Christians did. And you can't say that God only exists in our space, but no other space. Okay. But then, the healthy dose of reality, with all of that, Allah comes and tells the Prophet and Muslims, وَلَن تَرْضَ عَنْكَ الْيَهُودُ وَلَا النَّصَارَ حَتَّى تَتَّبِعَ مِلَّتَهُمْ قُلْ إِنَّ هُدَى اللَّهِ هُوَ الْهُدَى وَلَئِنِ اتَّبَعْتَ أَهْوَاءَهُمْ بَعْدَ الَّذِي جَاءَكَ مِنَ الْعِلْمِ مَا لَكَ مِنَ اللَّهِ مِنْ شَيْءٍ مَا لَكَ مِنَ اللَّهِ مِنْ وَلِيٍّ وَلَا نَصِيرٍ That despite your high moral stand despite your discerning moral attitude despite the fact that you didn't come until condemn Jews and their beliefs in one sweeping um, in one swoop and you didn't do the same with Christians despite that don't think that this tolerant attitude this open-mindedness is going to mean that they will be happy with your religion. 
In other words, you're not being tolerant to appease them. You're tolerant because that's what God teaches you is right. As to their attitude, they will want nothing short than that you abandon your path. Now, abandon your path means any of your path, including, and for instance, I'll, I'll give you a concrete example. Maybe this will bring the close. So many times, Christian evangelists, when I used to engage them, and even in Islamophobic literature, among you find the things in the literature of Christian evangelists is that when you talk to Muslims, tell them the following. You know, I, I have their books. They tell them the following. I, as a Christian, I am know where I'm going when I die. But you, as a Muslim, you don't know where you're going as you, when you die. Why are they saying that? Because they're saying, I, as a Christian, know that my salvation is in accepting Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. But you, as a Muslim, your Quran teaches you that the fact that you accepted Muhammad will not guarantee you heaven. And in fact, even if you pray and fast, that will not guarantee you heaven. Because according to your Quran, it's up to God. There is no guarantee. Wouldn't you like to join the faith that guarantees you heaven? This is in all their literature as to how to evangelize to Muslims. I've had this told to me, point blank. And the temptation of so many Muslims is to respond to this by saying, no, in fact, I know, because God promises heaven to Muslims. You can't alter your ethical stand because of a polemic. Dig in, in your ethics, and understand why your ethics are your ethics. So my response to these evangelists is, well, I'm happy that you are so comforted. You are comforted for by for you by taking your Lord for granted. I that delusion, living a delusion doesn't bring me any comfort. In your belief, yes. You believe you're going to heaven for sure, but you also believe that I'm going to hell for sure. In my belief, I have a reasonable conviction that God is just and that if I do all that God asks of me, I'm going to heaven. And in my belief, I, can't, I, just, I have a reasonable belief that you might still go to heaven. Which of us has the higher moral position? In my belief, I, I don't condemn myself and I don't celebrate myself. Your belief celebrates you and condemns me. Which is better?
Okay. Now, notice, and I'm going to stop after this, but notice then how the dealing, uh, uh, before I do that, um, I want to just go to, uh, I'm going to, because I, I had tried to remember to do this and I forgot. Genesis chapter 21. We said that the Quran surprises Jews with its familiarity with what they say, but the Quran stands as a corrective. Now, okay, so you know the story that in the Bible you have always Abraham mentioned, Isaac mentioned, Moses mentioned. Isaac is mentioned and Ismail is always ignored. But look at Genesis chapter 21. Okay. So, wherefore, said unto Abraham, cast out this bondswoman and her son. Oh, no, let, let me backtrack so you understand. Okay. Um, and Sarah saw the son of Hagar. Who is Hagar? The mother of Ismail, right? So, Sarah, mother of Ishaq, saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian which she had borne unto Abraham, mocking. Wherefore, she said unto Abraham, Cast out this bondswoman and her son, for the son of this bondswoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. Here, the Bible is referring to Ismail, but not naming Ismail. And according to the Bible, Sarah tells Abraham, Cast out. Hagar and her son Ismail because he can't be an heir. And the thing was, and that thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. Ibrahim thought it was grievous because he loved his son, Ismail. And God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of thy bondsman. In all that Sarah has said unto thee, hearken unto her voice, for in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And also for the son of the bondswoman will I make a nation, because he is thy seed. And also of the son of the bondswoman, Hagar, will I make a nation, because he is thy seed. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and took bread and a bottle of water, and gave it unto Hagar, putting it on her shoulder, and the child, and sent her away, and she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. So according to the Bible, Ibrahim wakes up one morning, brings Hagar, gives her bread, a loaf of bread, gives her a bottle of water, and says, Go. You and your son, Ismail, go into the wilderness. The wilderness of Beersheba, back then, included everything below the Jordan. So all of Arabia, 
was considered wilderness of Bishtiba. And the water was spent in tomorrow, so she finished the water. And she cast the child under one of the shrubs. And she went and sat her down over against him a good way off, as it were a bowshot. For she said, let me not see the death of the child. And she sat over against him and lifted up her voice and wept. So she thought her son was going to die, so she put him down in the bushes and said, I don't want to see him die. And so she was crying. And God heard the voice of the lad, and the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said unto her, What aileth thee, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him in thine hand, and for I will make him a great nation. And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the bottle with water, and gave the lad drink. So, God gave her a well of water. What's the well of water that God gave Hagar? Zemzem. So, Zemzem is in the Bible. So, when the Quran comes and says, I've sent you a revelation, a confirmation of what you have, the difference is, is the Bible says that Ismail, the seed of Ismail, will be a great nation. Later on, as I showed you, it says that the brother of Ishaq, the Messiah will come from the brother of Ishaq. This narrative in Genesis is completely ignored, both in Judaism and Christianity. Because it confirms exactly what the Quran says. But the Quran picks up where the Bible leaves off and says that it's not just a great nation, but a great prophet. And the correction of the past. So, Notice then, go to 124. So, So, And remember when your sustainer tried Abraham by his commandments and the later fulfilled them. He said, Behold, I shall make you a leader of men. And Abraham asked, Will you make leaders of my offspring as well? God answered, My covenant does not embrace a rolling moon. My covenant does not embrace the unjust. Okay. This is now critical. Why? The Bible, the seed of Ibrahim and Ishaq are the bearers of the covenant, right or wrong. They're the chosen people. 
they are the bearers of the covenant, even if it's someone like what the Bible says about Solomon, who even and what the Bible says about the Israelites that they often become idolaters. It doesn't matter. The the seed, the descent of Ibrahim and Isaac, Ishaq are chosen. The Quran comes and it is precisely that's the bottom line is that Ibrahim the, the seed of Ibrahim comes prophets. That Islam agrees with the biblical tradition on. But the prophets are not limited to the descendants of Ishaq and Ibrahim, but beyond that. But critically, the covenant is not given to the unjust. So there is no entitlement because you're chosen or because you're the right tribe or the right descent or the right race. If you are unjust, you're not entitled to bear the covenant. So, I will finish tonight for tonight with So many commentators note that this means that Quranically any unjust human being and any unjust ruler cannot claim to be in good standing with God. Injustice is disqualifying. It doesn't matter if you are the guardian of the two holy sites. Are you just or unjust? It doesn't matter if you go around and calling yourself the great leader of the Egyptian people who claims to that is guided by directly by Allah and that Allah talks to him. Are you just or unjust? It doesn't matter, in fact, whether you're Muslim or, or not Muslim. Are you just or unjust? And that is the main revolutionary act in Medina. Is that if Islam came and said, no, you have no entitlements, you have no privilege, you have no superiority, it is a matter of justice. Point blank. And that's, and look at what Muhammad Abdu says about this verse. Al-Zalimina min al-Umara qad istaanu bil-Zalimina min al-Fuqaha ala iqna' al-Amma بأنهم أئمة الدين الذين يجب اتباعهم حتى في الأمور الدينية
حتى في الأمور الدمية وحالوا بينهم وبين كتاب الله الذي ينطق بأن عهد الله بالإمامة لا ينال الظالمين وغشوهم بأن أئمة الفقه الأربعة يحكمون بذلك ولو عرف الناس سيرتهم مع خلفاء زمنهم لما تيسر غشهم So what Muhammad Abdul is saying is the unjust rulers acting jointly with unjust fuqaha, unjust scholars, convinced Muslims that rulers are owed obedience just because they're rulers. And if only Muslims would have understood the Quran, unjust rulers and unjust scholars would have never been able to deceive them in that way. One final thing. You notice the expression in the Quran that says, وَإِذَا إِبْتَلَى إِبْرَاهِيمَ رَبُّهُ بِكَلِمَاتٍ فَأَتَمَّهُنَّ The study Quran, I mean, sorry, Muhammad Asad translates this as when when, remember when the sustainer, when God tried Ibrahim by God's commandments, and the later fulfilled them. Literally, when God tried Ibrahim السلام, with God's kalima, with God's commandments, but do you, do you want to see when I told you that there were people converting in, to Islam and injecting into Islam what cannot be a part of Islam. Here, the commandments that Ibrahim is tested with and that prove Ibrahim's ethical position are what? Are the commandments in believing in God, worshiping only God, and standing for justice. But there is a tradition in Islam that says, tells you something very odd. That what God is talking about in the test that Ibrahim passed is the laws consisting of shaving the mustache, properly rinsing your mouth, properly cleaning your nose, using the siwak, properly cutting your nails, properly shaving your pubic hair, properly shaving your armpit hair, and so on. The, here, this tradition makes the challenge to Ibrahim highly ritualistic, devoid of any moral content. It is as if 
the test to Ibrahim was consisted of nails, hair, hair in different parts of the body and nails. While in the other tradition, the test to Ibrahim was to surrender unto God and uphold justice. That tradition about hairs and nails comes from Talmudic origins and was brought to Islam and transmitted in the form of hadith through Jewish converts. Because here's the thing. I don't know if you've ever heard Islamophobes accuse Islam of being a highly ritualistic religion. And they call it orthoproxy. It's about correct practice, not belief, correct belief. That is a thoroughly Orientalist projection. Because it is Judaism, and particularly the, the rabbinic tradition, that is highly ritualistic that it is the rabbinic tradition that reduced the covenant of Ibrahim to hair and nails. It was projected onto Islam, while Islam is not about rituals. That, that's Wahhabi. That's the, I call it the Judaizing of Islam. Wahhabism is the Judaizing of Islam. But Islam, from the beginning, was about turning to God, giving in to God, upholding justice and human liberation. So that is the context of Surah Al-Baqarah. That's the confrontation between Surah Al-Baqarah and especially what the first half Surah Al-Baqarah addresses, and that is to deconstruct the idea that there are a chosen people who carry God's covenant and clearing the way for a new paradigm. With that, then we can next halakha, inshallah, start into the moral lessons of Surah Al-Baqarah instead of the historical context of Surah Al-Baqarah. Okay, walhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. So it's not official until Greece comes and does the honors. I hope it was not, I, I hope it was clear enough and it was not hard to understand. It's, it's a lot of concepts and a lot of ideas. Bismillah ar um, I always say that there, there's always a moment at which, like during the Halakha, where it just like I feel this overwhelming visceral reaction. And today, I just, I felt like I just wanted to cry. Um, this is so beautiful. Um, and especially, I think, as a, as a convert, um, you know, I think that 
just what we've learned so far in Surah Baqarah, if people actually took the time to really listen and put it all together, I really don't understand um, why not everyone would just convert. <laughs> Sorry, maybe I'm fanatic. But I feel like you, you answered so many human points. You know, I, we've received a lot of questions like, okay, what does Surah Baqarah have to say about chosen people? Well, you've answered all of that. You know, people want to understand, okay, why, why do Muslims think in such ritualistic terms? Well, you've answered that. How does the Bible differ from the Quran and in a way that matters to like how we live our lives? Well, you've answered that. I mean, even the fact that you are able to pull this Bible and just return the gaze, let's just go point by point. And I think what was really especially powerful for me was when you read what the Bible had to say about Hagar and Ishmael. I mean, for God's sake, it, it's like says what, I mean, it, it verifies what is Islam. And the fact that the Jews and Christians have ignored it. I mean, th this is like mind blowing. Um, and I mean, just to have heard that not, you know, 10 minutes ago, it's like a little bit hard to process. But, you know, I think that this exercise of just putting everything in its historic context, I mean, you've made it, you know, accessible for people. Um, You've you blown out of the water the whole idea of ritualism and the whole ridiculousness of you know, Wahhabism and the, the, the Judaism of Islam, you know, you've helped us to understand Islamophobia in a different way because when you say, okay, this is what Islamophobes say or this is what Orientalists say, because many of us have heard these things and, you know, we couldn't put them anywhere because we didn't know. And I feel that, you know, this changes everything. I mean, I honestly, like, I can't even look at social media anymore where I see Muslims dropping little like sentences, you know, oh, this hadith says that, this Quranic verse says this, as if that's the answer to everything. You know, it's like, it's like you can't go back when you know so much more and you feel really angry in one way and also hopeful in another that there's so much in this tradition and it's just so unfair like we muslim like muslims don't know any of this and they don't even necessarily know that they that, that it's here for them so i mean i just am blown away so grateful um overwhelmed i mean with emotion because it just like okay it's all here it's all right here and it's just all it takes is for people to take it seriously and and invest in knowledge which is just so foreign to so many to Muslims. I want people to help us preserve this because you're, you're right, this knowledge can, I am demonstrating how knowledge can mean the difference between defeat and victory, between living as a people with dignity and honor and not being ashamed of anything and it, it's people just don't know how much they don't know but it needs to be I, I just people need to help us preserve this knowledge because if it's not preserved I don't know how long it's gonna take until another person comes along 
and puts it all together. And as you know, it took millions of dollars and I don't know how many hours and languages and studying. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know, yeah, I mean, I, God can always send someone, but I mean, knowing like what, um, what the journey has been, at least from what I've seen since I've known you, um, I don't think anyone is really interested in what you've done or necessarily capable. I mean, it just, you know, like we have so many stories to tell. Um, and maybe one, there'll be another opportunity for that. But um, alhamdulillah, I feel like we're so blessed and so so lucky to be receiving this. I think people don't really know like how much has gone into this knowledge here and just being able to get arrive and take it for free, you know, because you've shed blood and tears and God knows how many nights of pain and suffering um, and I will testify to that, you know, um, but now I understand, like, this, this is gold. I mean, this is the future for our faith, for anyone who wants to take it seriously. And if you've heard this and you've come this journey with us, um, I feel like the accountability, you can't hear this, you know, and not feel like, okay, if, if you don't do something with it and take it seriously, I mean, this is... This is a loss for, for humanity, but this is also an opportunity for humanity, right? I mean, it's, oh, there's just so much to say. Um, alhamdulillah. Um, but I just, I don't know. I think I haven't felt this really, I mean, I don't know if anyone else wants to chime in, but this is the, I mean, this is the answer that, you know, Muslims need to turn things around and to see how we have something to offer humanity that other faith traditions don't have. And it's not like it's that hard. It's not, I mean, well, I should say it is hard. You make it seem so easy. But to arrive here is, you know, amazing. So um, thank you. I just, I want to cry. <laughs> so um, anyway, um, I'm really excited to, to hear the next phase, um, the moral part. I mean, you think like, oh my God, you know, what we received today in the last three days is uh, oceans of knowledge and so and, and the fact that we have not even I mean this is now just the 68th surah out of 114 holy cow what's <laughs> you know, what remains but um, but yes please um, to anyone who's hearing this you know if you're part of this you know um, what we're doing here I mean we work around the clock all of us doing our different parts of this, trying to preserve this tradition, you know, whether it's transcribing, editing, you know, recording, uploading, taking snippets. Um, I mean, everyone, even just supporting everyone else, just being a friend. We're all here and we're all in it and because we all believe that this is something really important for the future. And so if you want to be with us on this journey, come, we invite you. Um, you know, whatever you can do, even just a prayer, you know, God will accept and, and we will be so grateful for that. So um, tell your friends, tell anyone who you think is, is searching that here it is. You know, it takes some work, but it's here. Alhamdulillah, thank you so much. And uh, inshallah, I hope you guys um, enjoy the rest of your weekend and we hope to see you 
next Wednesday to be continued. Alhamdulillah. We're going to all go have a crying session together. <laughs> Alhamdulillah. Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Assalamu alaikum.